Soon enough came the day when Grandfather Vanderveer's solicitors arrived to appraise the house and everything in it. The house was, after all, in his name. He was not a man to transfer property into anyone's hands, especially not the hands of a son who had married so unwisely. I saw them out the window descending from their carriage, looking over the facade of our modest canal house, nodding and pointing. I could see the bushy beard of my grandfather issuing orders from inside that carriage. At least I assumed he was issuing orders. His beard had a way of bobbing when he was taking charge, and that was almost always. Knowing the Vanderveers as I did, I ran into my room for my pewter music box that played a Chopin waltz. My father had given it to me for my seventeenth birthday. I hurriedly wrapped it in a cloth and buried it in a back window box. My haste was well advised. Since my mother had ruined my father's life, Grandfather Vanderveer felt quite justified, under the guise of providing for the future, in reclaiming not only the house, but everything of value in it, from my piano and the large gilt-framed mirrors, down to the last silver teaspoon and Harry's rifle. Harry regretted the rifle. Be glad, I consoled him, that they did not also appraise your boots for auction. We're lucky to have kept our clothes. This last outrage, which Grandfather Vanderveer termed laying final matters to rest, brought our mother out of her shroud. As soon as the door closed behind the solicitors and their clerks, my mother sat down at her small desk and began to write. I will not allow it she muttered. God will not allow it. She looked up to see us staring at her. I am writing to your grandfather. He won't change his mind, said Harry gently. Your grandfather Fitzsimmons, snapped my mother, and returned to the task of writing her letter. Our mythical grandfather Fitzsimmons, who apparently had permitted but not admired my mother's choice of husband, in 1879 had sailed from England to seek the glitter of gold and diamonds in South Africa. He had never met his twin grandchildren, and we had no pictures of him. Harry and I did dutifully write him a Christmas letter every year, as did my mother, and we mailed them off, rather like putting them in a bottle and tossing it into the waves. We never received a reply. We never heard what had happened to him beyond the sea's horizon, nor about his search for golden diamonds but apparently he had found some, and my mother's frantic letter did reach him. He sent us not only money for passage, but enough extra to pay the tradesmen's bills, to ransom from the seamstress our newest gowns with the new, slim, wasp-voisted fashion, and to buy necessaries for the journey. These included an extraordinarily ornate black velvet and ostrich feather hat that my mother, with angry defiance, bought so that the Vanderveer's last glimpse of her would be wearing her widow's weeds topped by that very stylish hat. Our mythical grandfather Fitzsimmons even wrote three nice little notes of welcome in a crisp and even hand, one to my mother, one to Harry, and one to me. My first proof that he really did exist, somewhere thousands of miles south of Amsterdam. In spite of his little note of welcome, I did not harbor high expectations of that faraway place. Nor had my experiences with grandparents left me longing to have more. But every night before I went to sleep, 
I thanked our English grandfather for handing my Dutch grandfather and all the other Vanderveers the stinging disappointment of not having us as paupers with our begging bowls at their door.